thought that applause was for me, maybe. Like, oh, you recorded last week's session with all the, all the applause. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Um, I love looking out and seeing faces live here in-house, so a special shout-out to you guys. But if you're out there online, wherever you are catching us, welcome. Um, I'm really, really thankful for the opportunity to share a message with you today. Uh, this will be our last uh, message in the Gospel of Mark, which we call the Jesus the Servant Messiah. It's all in the Gospel of Mark. This will be our last now, let me clarify, the last in Mark before we take a break for Christmas. So we're going to teach through some, some Christmas-specific things through in the month of December, and then we'll get back into Mark. So if you're going like, wait, my favorite part of Mark is coming up, we'll get there. We'll get there. So right now, what we're doing is we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we call it Jesus the Servant Messiah because that's what I think the Gospel of Mark is all about. You know, each Gospel tells the story of Jesus from a certain perspective and emphasizes a certain aspect of who Christ is. But the Gospel of Mark is all about all about the, the miracles and the power and the things that Jesus does as he travels around in his ministry in the Galilee region. And it's meant specifically to draw attention to the source of that power. Not just the miracles themselves, although if you were a person getting your sight restored or being healed from leprosy, it would, without a doubt, change your day, right? It would be an amazing thing. But the point of this, and the reason Mark is just like bang, bang, just super rapid fire through all the miraculous things that Jesus does, is to draw attention to the source of that power. And this message today really, really focuses in on the source of the miracles, not necessarily the miracles themselves. So when we saw last week, when we checked in, um, last week we finished up chapter 2. This will be the first week that we begin chapter 3. And last week we saw Jesus and his disciples traveling around the Galilee again. They had just performed a miracle and kind of said, we need to, we need to head out of town and get some space so that we can recover and and, and just recharge. And they were traveling around to some smaller towns, just kind of preaching along the way and teaching along the way to the people that they came in contact with. And what we saw is that they were, as they were either walking down a road or maybe cutting through a field, and they were picking the heads off of the, off of the wheat and eating them, just kind of like snacks. You know, if you're, you're hungry, you're a traveler, you would pluck a head of wheat off and, you know, peel it down and then just eat the kernel of wheat. This was a common practice in those days. And it was actually legal by Mosaic law. It said you could literally do that. It was an act of hospitality. You couldn't harvest someone else's field, but help yourself to a little bit as you travel through to, to nourish yourself and, and keep going. It was something that was very, very common. But at the same time they're doing this, now Jesus had been basically traveling around, not, not only doing miracles, but kind of having these little minor confrontations with the Pharisees along the way. Every time he would do something, there'd be somebody around the corner lurking over a bush or watching him do what he does and said, why are you doing that? That's illegal. You shouldn't be doing that. Who do you think you are? Basically having a problem that Jesus was going around ministering to people and crowds in an amazing way. Who could have a problem with that? The Pharisees had a problem with that. Pretty much every time he turned around, somebody was there to question what he was doing. That's exactly what we see. So last week, here's, 
here's kind of that interaction, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 from last week. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, the story I just told you about, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So again, it had been specifically laid down in the law that it was legal to do that. They weren't stealing. They were doing that. It was an act of mercy. But the Pharisees that posed that question, they were having this hard time reconciling what Scripture said about the Sabbath. You shouldn't work on the Sabbath. You shouldn't do, literally, Scripture says nothing, no work of any kind. We talked about that in depth last week. And so this act of mercy, an act of necessity just to feed yourself during the Sabbath as you happen to be walking along, and then reconciling that with the law that said you shouldn't work, of course, they had a problem with that and said that that very act of plucking grain, peeling it, constituted reaping and threshing, and therefore, you shouldn't do it. So Jesus, they posed this question to him, <coughs> and his answer ultimately to them is one, remember, they've, they've been kind of watching him, and he's taught some amazing things, and they've heard him teach right out of Scripture, right? What for us would be the Old Testament, but it's, it's Scripture to them, and he taught it, and he taught it well, and he taught it accurately, but he had these little things where he was pushing the limits of what was okay with them, pushing the limits of maybe he's kind of almost teaching heresy here, but he's not really, but we don't like it nonetheless. And so they're following him along, just sort of looking for the rope to hang himself with. So that's what they are. So we get to this point. The last scripture from last week was Mark 2.27, where he says this outright outright declaration that's just, it's too much for them. Jesus said that Mark 2.27, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Okay, you and I might go, okay, well, that's not that earth-shattering a declaration. But he basically just said, I am God. Okay, he said, I have authority over the law. I am God. You read between the lines, that's what he's saying, and that's too much for them. It's like, all right, this, that's, that's pretty much all we need. Maybe if we could get a little bit more evidence to shore up our case, it would be good. So they continue to follow him around trying to just gather evidence, get, get, get that one thing, that smoking gun, we would call it, that you, you just can't ignore that's going to cause them to go after him. So this week, we see that. It's another one of those little conflict or another interaction with the Pharisees that this is going to be too much for them. So here we are, going into chapter 3, Mark 3, 1. And he entered a synagogue again, and a man was there whose hand was withered. There's a lot to look at in that little scripture right there. Number one, he entered a synagogue again. (coughs) Synagogues, there was was only one temple in Jerusalem, but there were synagogues everywhere. Every town, um, every city of any kind of size at all had their own synagogue. And a synagogue was really kind of one of the first democratic institutions there was. Sure, you had You had some rabbis, at least one, maybe a collection of several. But really, in synagogue, the the Jews who were there, the Jewish men, of course, would get up and they would offer their opinions. 
They would talk about it and they would debate and they would go back and forth about teaching Scripture and about what it meant and they would talk about this. And really, the person teaching up front wouldn't always be the rabbi. It could be pretty much anyone. Again, very democratic. And then if there had to be a debate that was settled or some sort of a discussion, then the rabbis were there to to weigh in on that. But it wasn't always the rabbis teaching from the front. The fact that Jesus and his disciples were able to enter the synagogue again shows us really that he wasn't, at that point at least, wasn't considered to be a heretic, wasn't considered to be demon-possessed. If he was, they wouldn't have allowed him in to synagogue at all. Heretics and those who were openly demon-possessed weren't necessarily allowed in synagogue. We know that because, remember I said a synagogue is kind of democratic, sort of like led by a lot of the, of the lay people, the regular Joes in that area. They did have some standard liturgy, kind of a standard framework for how they did synagogue. And one of the things they did at the very beginning is that they would read this specific... Um, was called the Shemina Eshra, and what it really means, it literally means 18 benedictions or 18 blessings. And so they would read that as they started out in synagogue each time. And the 18 benedictions included this one part called the Berkat Hominum, close, which is Hebrew for a blessing, okay? But it's a curse. Now, a blessing on heretics specifically But in reality, it was a curse. But since this is synagogue and we're here before God, let's call it a blessing even though we're praying a curse. Anybody ever had a prayer like that that they've heard or been a part of? I'm praying a blessing over you, but really my heart's kind of a curse. But anyway, that's that's where they are here. And a man was there whose hand was withered. This idea of a withered hand. See, again, to us, it just seems like, okay, he had this little affliction going on. The idea of a withered hand specifically, we see all throughout Scripture going all the way back there where it was essentially considered an affliction given to you by God because of something that you did, whether it was an outright uh, sin or, or, or a curse on you, however it was. And it really it goes back, if we want to look at the first incidence of that, kind of goes back First Kings. 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 6. I'll read this one for you. This is King Herobam, where he was threatening one of God's prophets. Now, this, is a guy, this guy's a prophet. You probably haven't heard of him. His name is Jadon. And Jadon comes, and he's basically giving God's word to King Herobam that what you're doing is wrong. And here's the interaction. 1 Kings 13, 6. Now when the king heard the statement of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar at Bethel, Herobam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, seize him. Okay, so Herobam is on the altar, and this man is speaking the word of God, warnings against the king, and he stretches out his hand and says, seize him. Okay, so picture that motion, seize him. He's pointing at him, but his hand, which he had stretched out toward him, dried up, and he could not draw it back to himself. So that was a literal affliction given to the king by God for pointing out and coming against one of his prophets. So his hand literally shriveled up. So we see that going all the way back. Now this man that's in the temple was probably repentant of whatever it is he did or was have alleged to have done because they allowed him into the temple. 
into, into synagogue. He was probably repentant. We don't know for sure. But here's what happens here. Mark 3, 2. And they were watching him closely, him being Jesus, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Again, remember, these, some of these Pharisees were traveling around following Jesus, waiting for him to step over the line and do something. So when they saw the man with the withered hand and they saw Jesus, they're like, this could be the thing we're waiting for. We'll wait for it. See how Jesus handles this. Because remember, in their mind, this prohibition against work of any kind on the Sabbath, including healing. So Mark 3.3. 3. Now, I want to go back again. They were watching him closely. So they're watching Jesus. And then there's the man out there. Now, nobody challenged. The man didn't say anything. The man didn't stand up and draw attention to himself or come line up in front of him or anything like that. But Mark 3.3, 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. So again, no prompting. Jesus saw the man, just like everybody else did, and his heart, the compassion in his heart, just said, I, I can't ignore what I'm seeing right here. I, that man needs healing. He needs deliverance. He needs forgiveness. I can't just ignore it like I'm not seeing it. Now, having the man where it says, he said to the man, get up and come forward. That tells us a couple other things. Number one, it tells us Jesus was teaching. It was Jesus' turn up front in synagogue because he said, come forward. And that's where all the, the, the speaker would be, whoever was teaching or talking at the time would be up front. It also tells us a couple interesting things. What it accomplished by Jesus telling this man, come forward. Number one, it gave the people in the congregation, the other people there in the synagogue, it gave them the first opportunity to see this man, whether they were paying attention or not. Now they're seeing him. gives them the opportunity to show compassion first. They had the opportunity to say, we should pray for this man before he even got up front but they didn't. They were just silent. And by calling him up front, standing right there in front of synagogue, right in front, they couldn't ignore what they were about to see. So he called their attention to it, gave them the opportunity to act first. And when they didn't, then Jesus takes the matter into his own hands. Now, again, get the, get the picture here. Jesus is up front. He's teaching. He looks out, sees the man with the hand and says, come forward. Now, Whatever he is teaching, we don't know. I would love to have a transcript of all these various teachings that Jesus did as he traveled around. I'm sure it was amazing. But he pauses in the middle of teaching. Come forward. And he pauses for just a second. Whatever he was teaching, he stops. And he turns to the people. Mark 3, 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? To save a life or to kill, but they kept silent. So this, is a, this isn't a, a, a direct, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but it's a teaching question. He's up front. It'd be like if all of a sudden I said, now what would you do if a crippled man came through the door and wanted prayer for healing? So it's that kind of a question. Or would it be okay if we did that? Is it okay with you if we take a moment and pray for someone here in service? You would answer, right? Most likely you would answer. But 
They don't answer. He's trying to cause them to think about what it is that they're doing. But the second part of that, where he says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Wait a minute. Nobody said anything about killing or saving lives here. That's not what we were talking about. Guess who was thinking about killing the Pharisees that were in the crowd? Can you imagine how that statement was like an arrow into their heart? Like, we're not even talking about killing, and he's like reading our mail right now. Can you imagine how that would have felt? Because he's just poking right at them. He knows what they're thinking. And so he's asking that question. But here's the thing. Rather than to get an answer, because the Pharisees, when the Pharisees or the rabbis, whoever was there in temple, if there was a question like that and nobody had a general answer, they would all turn to the rabbi or to, in this case, the Pharisees, whose job it was to be the ones who told you what things meant, told you the answers to everything in life. They would have turned to them and nobody said anything. Nobody had an answer. The Pharisees didn't have an answer. The people didn't have an answer. And it was probably this long, uncomfortable silence where he's asked that question and people are going like, I don't know. I think I know the answer. You say the answer. You say it. You say it. He's, that's Jesus. He, you know, and the Pharisees are right there. Let them answer. So you could see this kind of, of argument that's probably going on internally as nobody's got an answer. So there's this long, uncomfortable silence. And finally, Jesus, Mark 3, 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Again, he's waiting for those people to go, you know what? You know what? He's right. Let's get up and let's lay hands and let's pray and let's heal this man. Let's do, let's do something for this man. Let's have compassion. Nobody moved a muscle. They're just sitting there staring at him. Stretch out your hand, he says to the man. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. No incense, no, um, no special ceremonies. Didn't even touch the man. Just said, stretch out your hand. And he didn't even say, your hand is now healed and your sins are forgiven. He said, stretch out your hand, and boom. It was restored. Just that fast. When the power comes from Jesus himself, it doesn't take all kinds of ceremony. It just happens when he says it's going to happen. But this anger that Jesus had, this anger and this grieved at their hardness of heart, it's not this self-righteous anger at them. It is, it is, you people know the law. You're here in synagogue and you're talking about the things of God and you're talking about what Scripture says about mercy and all these things. And yet, none of you had an answer. None of you could have come up to help. None of you had a word for this man. Nothing like that. It's a passionate response to seeing their apathy in this situation. Maybe it was confusion. Maybe it was, well, you're Jesus, you tell us. Maybe it was like that. But he's grieved at their hardness of heart. And think about this, the way that he did it. So they had already had a problem because they picked a head of grain and peeled it. So that's reaping and threshing. And that act right there, they already had a problem with that. So healing on the Sabbath, he didn't reach out and touch the guy. He didn't wash him with oils. He didn't do any of those sorts of ritual things that the Pharisees would do. 
in order to try and heal somebody. He didn't do any of that, so he didn't do any work. In other words, this man was healed right in front of their eyes, and Jesus didn't so much as put his hand on his shoulder. It just happened. That eliminated one of those major contention points where they would have said, now look at all the things he's doing. He's not supposed to. They couldn't say that. And yet, the healing happened right in front of them. Right at the feet of Jesus it happened. So they had a couple choices. They could be angry about this, or they could acknowledge what they just saw because his withered hand was literally restored right in front of them. But either one of those things would have required them to admit that Jesus was the source of that. It wasn't the ritual, the ceremony, all the things that we would attach towards trying to heal or deliver someone. He just said, come up and be in my presence. And right then it happened. What a conundrum they would have had at that point. Like, we can, we can say, that was amazing. And by doing that, they would have to admit that maybe he was who he said he was. Or they could be angry about it, in which case... We've just seen that happen with no work attached to it, but it happened. How can we be angry at that? He put him in this place. Jesus is great at doing that. Puts you in this place where just the act of trying to reconcile what you think you know with what you just saw in front of you causes your brain to swell up, and it does me on a daily basis. But it causes me to think about what is happening, and I have a choice. I can either acknowledge it and praise him, give him all the glory, or I can give credit to another source. Or worse yet, I can discount that it happened. I always pray that I have that first response. But so rather than be amazed at this power, they decide that they're going to see it as a challenge to their status quo, their, their status literally in the community. Coupled with the fact that he seemed to read their minds about the whole idea of killing, this guy had to go. They're no longer like, we're not sure how we think about this guy. We're not sure if he's a good teacher that we just need to get on our side. Now they know. This guy's got to go. Mark 3, 6, Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with, conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might put him to death. Immediate. So they witnessed this act, this great act, man whose hand had been withered. He was healed, and their response is, okay, we need to kill this guy. Let's go, guys. Let's go outside and talk about how we're going to kill him. Another thing this verse does is illustrate this universal hatred of Jesus that the establishment had. Not only the Pharisees, but when it talks about the Herodians, not many people hear or talk much about the Herodians, but what they are, let me explain it this way. Most Pharisees were very strict Israelite nationalists, okay? Israel all the way. Israel number one. They were very, very pro-Israel. They were against all the pagan countries surrounding them. Anybody other than Israel didn't really matter. They were huge fans of Israel, as they should be. Very, very nationalistic. Herodians, though, were this group of people who, some of them were Jews, some of them were not, but they all were very big fans of Herod. That's King Herod, who was installed by Rome. 
very big fans. They, they're the ones that would have the banner on the front of their house that said, King Herod, all the way, let's go. The problem is they were seen as traitors in some cases or suck-ups to Rome. They probably had some kind of a business or a, or a social reason for siding with Herod. Maybe it was just out of fear. Like, look, if we, if we don't say that we're fans of Herod, who knows what's going to come our way. Whatever the reasoning was, these Israelite nationalists that the Pharisees were and the Herodians very rarely got along, very rarely saw eye to eye on just about anything. <clears throat> what they did agree on is that this guy, this teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, was not good for them in just about every way. It'd be like, to put it in today's standards, it'd be like, uh, it'd be like a group of Republicans working with a group of communists against a common foe, okay? It's kind of like that, just so that you can wrap your mind around how big of a deal it was that those two groups got together with Jesus as their common enemy. Very, very uncommon. So now these people, are they're rumbling, they're outside, they're talking about how we're going to kill him, how we're going to do away with him, and Jesus knows this. So also knowing that his time for ministry his earthly ministry to come to an end is not here yet. We're not at that place yet. Out of then wisdom, he and his disciples then decide, let's, let's take off. Let's go somewhere else. Not out of fear, but out of wisdom. Because he could have put himself in all the danger and been just fine. Later on, he puts himself in danger and is anything but fine, but he fulfills his destiny. So he wasn't afraid of what they could do to him but it's wisdom. Don't needlessly put yourself in danger. So that's what he's doing. Mark 3, 7 and 8, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. So he leaves that area and goes down basically to the sea. They're talking about the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And a large multitude from Galilee followed. Again, this crowd, he's trying to be alone, and the whole crowd is following him. And also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard about everything that he was doing and came to him. This is amazing. That's more than just a list. Let me show you a map real quick of just the region. This is kind of what this area looked like in Jesus' time. So got Idumea down here at the bottom, down in the southern part of Judea. That's where the Edomites settled, okay, going all the way back to Esau and Jacob. That's, that's where those tribes settled down there. Clear up to the north, up in Phoenicia, we've got Tyre and Sidon, and then, of course, Jerusalem right here in the middle, and then to the right, if you can see this very well, we've got the Dead Sea down here. Up top, we've got the Sea of Galilee. The river that connects the two of those, that's the Jordan. Everything east of the Jordan was total pagan territory. That's how they considered it, at least. The point of mapping out those things and specifically mentioning those is to show us. So Jerusalem was the center, the hub of Hebrew culture, of Hebrew religion, of Jewish politics. All of that was right there centered in Jerusalem. Idumea, again, it was the land of the Edomites. It was actually the birthplace also of Herod the Great was born in that area too. <coughs> then beyond the Jordan, talking about everything to the east of the Jordan, which is, where, which is where the pagans lived. Now, there were some 
Israelites and some Jews that lived out there, but mostly just generally considered pagan territory. And then Tyre and Sidon, being up north in Phoenicia. It's on the shore of the Mediterranean, very, very wealthy. Wealthy and worldly, let's just put it that way. So basically what he's saying here is that everybody from the hub, the center of Jewish culture and tradition, that hub, all the way down to where even the land where Herod was born, to the pagans east of the Jordan, to the wealthy, rich, influential people, worldly people up in Tyre and Sidon, all of these people came from all over, trying to show how multi, multicultural, multinational the influence of Jesus was and the draw of Jesus. That's why it goes to all the trouble to list those individual places. It's not just so you can, okay, these people traveled from all over the place. Different cultures, and they were all drawn to Jesus. This influence of Christ was causing rumblings all over the region. And it was a problem for just about everybody who was in power at the time. Mark 3, 9. And he told his disciples. So again, picture the scene. He's trying to get away so he can kind of just be quiet and regroup and maybe do some things like kind of sort of in private. But the crowd's not having it. They're following him. And if you've ever been to a place where, where um, maybe there's a rock star or there's a politician or something and people are around and there's no crowd control, they just push crowd gets this herd mentality and they just push around and we've seen people be literally crushed by it. We've seen that happen all the time. So he tells his disciples to see that a boat would be ready for him because of the masses so they would not crowd him. He's not trying to say, I don't want to be, I don't want to be near the people. He's saying, I want to talk to the people, but they will literally crush me. So go get a boat. Now when it says to see that a boat would be ready, if you have a King James version, it uses the word ship. I love, I love little things like this. Not, it's not theology, but King James used the word ship because in King James, England, when that version was translated, the Messiah would not be on a boat. He would be on a ship. Trust us. He would be on a ship. English in that time, especially navies, big ships was big for them. That was a status. That was power. That was authority. That was wealth. So a ship, so they used the word ship. But in reality, it was probably one of the fishing boats, I would guess one of the fishing boats that maybe even belonged to the disciples because several of them were fishermen, remember? But the boat was anything but grandiose. Let me show you a picture. If you've been to Israel or if you hope to go there, I would want to encourage you to go. Check this out. This is an actual, uh, the remains of a boat that carbon dates back to exactly the time of Jesus And this was found buried in the mud on the shore of the Galilee. And there actually were many others like it, but this one was fairly well preserved after 2,000 plus years buried in the mud. And this is actually in a little museum on the shore of the Galilee. You go to Israel, you can see it now. So it does not mean that's the one Jesus was in or his disciples owned that one, but it was a very common kind of a cookie cutter sort of a boat. Here's a painting sort of of kind of more like what the scene looked like. Like this. This is kind of what the boat would have looked like when it was intact. It's got a little sail. They're not, they're not sailing across, you know, to foreign lands. That's not what this is for. It's just to help them get back to shore when they're tired at the end of the day and full of fish. But this is kind of what the boat would have looked like. And it's just a little bit offshore, just enough to give him some space. And he's standing there and he's teaching to the crowds. Now, where we are, we're the crowd. 
watching Jesus, and he's teaching from there. Side note, if you've ever wondered where the word, where preachers that we preach from a pulpit, if you ever wondered that, pulpit is actually the front of a ship. Now, this being a boat, this is still called the pulpit area. And on a big ship, that's the area that goes out front where you stand, would stand out there. That's where the idea of preaching from a pulpit came from. It's a seafaring term. I just love those kind of nerdy things like that. Anyway, moving on. It's not theology. It's just fun. Mark 3.10. Again, this is so the crowds would not follow, would not crowd him. Mark 3.10, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had diseases pushed in around him in order to touch him. Can you imagine if you were suffering from disease, suffering from affliction, suffering from demons, how desperate you would be to become near the source of someone that you knew could heal you from those things? And that's exactly what's going on right here. In fact, um, Many, if not most, scholars imply that this, these diseases that are being talked about here are specifically spiritual diseases. Now, Jesus healed all kinds of sickness, everything from broken bones and arms to, to eyesight and deafness and things, but then also spiritual healing. Most people think that that's exactly what's going on here. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. We, we think that because of Mark 3.11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. So again, he had healed many with the result that those who had diseases pushed in around him in order to touch him. So these people are, are, are just pressing around him, trying to touch the source of this healing. And when the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down and shout, you are the son of God. Now, if there was any doubt as to whether this was spiritual or a hit your thumb with a hammer or fell off your roof and broke your leg kind of a healing, this is spiritual healing that they're talking about there. Demon possession, demon afflicted. That's what they're talking about here. And this is a, this is a we are legion kind of deliverance. Think of all these people who are afflicted spiritually, demonically, and they're pressing in around Jesus. Now, some scholars actually look at this, and I would tend to agree for the most part, where, they, where the demons or the, the unclean spirits see Jesus and they say, you are the Son of God. They shouted, you are the Son of God. Why would they do that? Why would these demons shout out acknowledgement of their arch enemy at this point? Why would they do that? I believe... It's one of two things. One, I think they wanted to say, or or to at least imply or insinuate that Jesus was one of them. Your power, the power of this man doing all this, he's one of us. And therefore, to to glom onto his his influence and his glory and everything right there, saying he's one of us, and thereby diminish who he really is. I think that's one thing. And then the other thing, I think, it goes back to what we read about in Luke's gospel. Luke's, Luke 10, 17. This is when Jesus had sent out the 72. Now the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Demons cannot resist the authority of Jesus. When demons are in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, they have no choice but to acknowledge who he is and obey. 
They have no choice. This isn't, it's not a fight. He dominates. Jesus says, be gone by my authority, and they have to. He doesn't even have to speak his authority because they know who he is. And this is one of those things. I think they're just blurting it out because they don't, they can't help themselves. We know who you are. Once demons are called out and once they're seen, they can no longer stay in the shadows. They have to acknowledge and submit to the authority of Jesus. I think that's what's happening right here. Mark 3.12, and he strongly warned them not to reveal who he was. Who's they? Jesus, Jesus is the he, warned them. Who's the them that Jesus said, don't tell anybody who I am? Don't announce who I am. Who's he talking to? Is it the crowd gathered nearby? It's the demons. He's telling the demons. So he's having this interaction with the demons. And he says, and he says, it's a strong warning not to reveal who he was. That is a hard rebuke. And he's given it specifically straight to the demons present. He doesn't want them to be the ones going and telling of who he is. We see that same dynamic happening today. Oh, this is who Jesus is. No, no, no. It's not who they say he is. Who do you say I am? That's what Jesus wants to know. And through the Holy Spirit in you, you know who Jesus is. He didn't want these demons twisting it up and and having their version of who Jesus was get out there. So he silences them right there with that word. We read in other scriptures where he tells tells men that he've healed, now don't tell anybody. And what do they do? They leave and immediately blast it out to everyone. The demons have to submit to Jesus. And so when he tells them, don't go spread it around, they don't. They have to do what he tells them. So, so where are we? Conclusion. As I was praying about how to finish this message, how to tie it up, and really where it would direct us for today, it brought me back to verse 310. Let's go back to Mark 3.10. If you could put that up on the screen again. Mark 3.10. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had diseases pushed in around him in order to touch him. Remember I said that, that idea, it's the idea of spiritual disease. But listen to this. In the Greek, if you translate that word diseases, in, in the Greek, it's mastics. And mastics, the literal definition is a whip or a scourge. Okay, a scourge being the tool that they would use on Jesus later. With the goal of inflicting a torturous level of pain. A torturous level of pain. And it really, it signifies pain is a penalty for sin. But where else have we seen that word used? That word or that idea right there? We saw it in Luke. It's only used in three other places. Only used in three other places. Luke 18, 32 and 33. Who's who's Luke talking about here? For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be ridiculed and abused and spit upon. And after they have flogged him, that's that word, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. That very thing that was eventually going to be used on him, he was taking away. He was taking away that kind of torturous level of, of pain, for demonic influence, for demonic affliction. 
and he was taking that away, it would later be put directly on him. But it's exactly the same thing that Isaiah prophesied, going all the way back hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah 53.5, very familiar scripture to most of us. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. This had been, and throughout Mark, we see these individual acts. Now, maybe there was a thousand individual acts, but still individual acts of healing and deliverance from Jesus. Very, very soon, all those individual acts will be replaced with one act once and for all. And that's what this is all alluding to right there. And I made the statement a few minutes ago that if you were suffering from that kind of pain and affliction, you would be desperate. You would do anything to press into the source of healing, wouldn't you? I would. We wouldn't or shouldn't have the same kind of doubts that the Pharisees had about who Jesus was. We have thousands of years of teaching, of study, of preaching, of, of reading the Bible. We have the very word that we can go back and look. So those kind of doubts, we shouldn't. He is the Messiah. He is the source. He is the healer. We shouldn't have those same kind of doubts that the Pharisees had about the identity of Christ, and we shouldn't have the same kind of fear that the demons had. Why then, when we are afflicted, whether it is physical or demonic, spiritual affliction, why do we try everything else first rather than to just go to the source? We should have an intense hunger and desire to go to the source who can speak into our afflictions and heal them with a word. And yet, most often, we look first to our own strength. I can figure this out. I can come up with it. I'm strong enough. I'm healthy enough. I'll try it. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. We look to our own wisdom first, whether maybe... Maybe it's the latest book or the latest TV show that we've seen, whatever it is. We seem to readily turn to all these sorts of sources first. Then, some of us take it to the extreme where we start looking at at potions and talismans and idols and all kinds of different... I have literally had... Christians tell me I have a hard time sleeping, so I hung a dream catcher above my bed. Uh, I, I, I hear things like that, and then when it says, Jesus was angered and grieved at their hardness of heart, I, I commiserate with the way he must have been feeling right there, at least in my own little bit. Like, have you heard nothing? Have you heard nothing that we teach? But only when those things don't work, only when we're at the end of all those things, do we then turn to the crowd. What say you all about my affliction and how I should heal it? Now, when I say that in this modern day and age, insert your own choice of social media here. That's funnier than you guys know. Or maybe you're going like, that's me. We'll let Facebook, we'll let YouTube, We'll yet let Instagram, TikTok, we'll let all those things suggest to us all these remedies for the things that ail us. 
And we'll go there first. We'll readily go there. I saw this on TikTok, so I'm going to try it. Somewhere along the process, maybe we will mix in prayer. Hoping that we'll come up with the perfect potion of a little bit of this and a little bit of that to heal us from our afflictions. Now let me be clear. I'm not saying that doctors, psychologists, um, deliverance ministers are not instruments that God can and does use for healing. Absolutely. Those people are instruments of God, but they are instruments of God. No matter how good a doctor is, he should be guided by the Lord's hand. He should be speaking to the Holy Spirit, not just going on what a book said. What we should be doing, if we truly accept the once and for all atonement of Jesus Christ for our sin and believe in our hearts truly that by his stripes, by his pain, by his affliction, we are healed, that needs to be the rock that we stand on. First and foremost, that's the rock we stand on. Now, if you want to look at other things while you're standing on that rock, fine. But get yourself on that rock first because that's not going anywhere. By his blood, we're reconciled and we receive the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate counselor and the ultimate answer for everything that afflicts us in this fallen world. If you are thankful for that, say amen. Amen. Mm, Me too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your son Jesus, by whom we have been reconciled to you. By his stripes, we have been healed. So Lord, I personally repent of those times where I have sought answers everywhere else first before going directly to the source. Lord, I kneel at your feet and I just repent of those times where I have trusted in the world. Help me to focus on you. Help me to see that you are the answer to everything in this fallen world. Everything. Without you, there is no answer. Without you, there is no strength. Without you, there is no wisdom. Those are all gifts from you. And Lord, I thank you that you give them to me. You give your Holy Spirit. You pour it out to those who call in the name of Jesus. And through that, through the work of Jesus on the cross, we are healed once and for all. Help us to accept that healing. Help us to live like those who have been healed. Help us to live our days like those who have been delivered. Father, we thank you. We are so grateful that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, I, uh, we're going to do communion right now. Uh, the way that we do it here, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are welcome to take communion with us. At the crosses, both crosses, we have self-serve there. It's juice and bread and crackers, and you just dip it in the cup. You could serve yourself there. Up front here, Pastor Gabe and myself will be up front, and we have the wine up there. We would be happy to serve you directly if you would like that. But I have a scripture that the Lord gave me to read specifically for communion. So I'm going to read that, and then we'll move into a time of communion. You can stay in your chairs and just worship. We have a prayer team in the back. If you need, um, if you need prayer for anything, 
they will be happy to pray with you. Maybe you just sit in your seat and just let the Lord minister to you as we worship together. When you're ready, we can move around and we can take communion. The scripture that I want to read to you is John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person up at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. Amen.